Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for season two as we delve back into the world of sports coaching. My guests will be presenting their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application and implementation. As always, I'm delighted to have another two wonderful individuals join me this week. So, gents, if you'd like to introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Yeah, hi, Phil. My name's uh, Richard Cheatham, and I'm a senior fellow in sports coaching at the University of Winchester. And I'm Derek Rudin, uh, Partnership Manager for People Development at Sport Scotland. Wonderful. Gents, absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, keen to get straight into things. But uh, just before we do, a uh, reminder to anyone listening to check out the blurb for links to all the content that we discuss and recommendations to other high quality content. So, uh, Cheats, we're going to come to you first. What, uh, what piece of content are you looking at? So um, I, I suppose the rationale behind it was I had a lot of work on reflective practice, um, thinking about perspective when we reflect in other words um are we overly critical of ourselves or do we put ourselves in the front sense of security thinking that oh that was a great session and not really have any perspective on on what really happened so i found an article called feedback for coaches who coaches the coach um i had a conversation with phil dowson now northampton saints who i've known for for quite a few years um and um, he just asked me one day, he said, well, who coaches you? I thought, well, that's a good question. Um, so if on my own reflection, am I really giving myself an accurate review of what has actually happened and who would I reach out to? So the article um, by Nash Bourne Horton, 2017, International Journal of Sports, Science and Coaching, um, very well, Stuart Dixon talking about and Tom Hartley talking about the, the challenge of academic work and its ability to be accessible and not written in such a language we can't really um, understand or, or apply without a translator. And I thought it was written in a really lovely way. It was accessible, some very poignant reflections from coaches. Um, and that's the article I found and the reason behind it. Awesome. Do you want to just give us a bit of a rundown of, of what that kind of goes through as a process? What are, what are they kind of actually talking about in, in the detail? Yeah, so it was a, it was a qualitative study. You know, there's just interviews for the coaches, 21 coaches, their reflections on uh, where they receive feedback. And the, the, they were arranged from, uh, uh, so let's call it expert coaches uh, or coaches who've got experience for a long period of time, novice coaches um, from... Um, and I, I use the word novice in terms of young in their coaching career, as well as uh, experienced and I've been coaching you know, a long time, not just the level you coach. I think that's quite important. And um, four themes emerged really in terms of where they got uh, their feedback from. So the first one was networks and that was support staff. So the people who work alongside you, um, people who you would look to your left and right that could be a physio that could be an assistant coach or senior coach but what came from that and it comes continually through there is that validity of information so in other words um you know if i'm a very experienced coach i reach out reach out to an equally experienced coach just through the way that we work it's more likely that there'll be some maybe accuracy in their reflections with me, their, their feedback to me. Whereas if I'm reaching out to, you know, a novice coach to an equally uh, inexperienced coach or, or someone who hasn't really developed themselves as a coach, um, how much accuracy and validity is in the feedback they're giving you? In other words, um, we had a, somebody came in actually a while ago talking about placements for students and said, yeah, I've been coaching since 1976. That's the last time we did a coaching award. And I said to the students, I said, which of these two coaches would you go and do a placement with? And half of them chose that, that guy. And I said, why? What, why is that over the one who's recently qualified? So I'll always be coaching a long time. So it's interesting about who you reach out to for feedback. 
you know that if you reach out to somebody who has experienced knowledgeable and has developed themselves it is more likely to give you that accuracy in their feedback to you and the second one this is four point second one is reach out to players and participants um so this is pretty common uh feel in terms of rugby you know uh i speak to the captain vice captain who are very good at putting their point across um so i think that's quite you know can you give me some feedback what do you think of the session um uh, so it's collaboration and, and a dialogue uh, where you feel quite open to share that. But what also emerged was um, the experience and experience of those questioned. So in other words, if somebody has experienced uh, a lot of coaching, they'll, they'll be able to compare your session with others, other coaches. So uh, well, for my experience, this is a lot more engaging because you're challenging a lot more. You're giving us a lot more ability to do decision making you were empowering us um, for, for an example. But also, um, and it's quite interesting, some work I've done with uh, in a primary school a couple of years ago on a lit literacy as well, is that what if those people you're asking are young children, six, seven, eight-year-olds, that level of sophistication of feedback compared to an experienced player athlete who's, I'll just say, an adult. So it's actually still being able to, to use the information that those age groups give you as feedback. I mean, my view might be that a child might give you more feedback in terms of their behaviours than their words, their level of engagement, that's feedback. It doesn't have to be verbal feedback. It could be the way they engage in your sessions. And again, it's uh, it comes back to this validity, you know, those informal sources used to influence coaching practice, well, how much of those do you give credibility? You know, players may like sessions they're good at. They may give you feedback. Well, we really enjoy that. Well, that's because you enjoyed it. You did well at it. But if you really, if you really, if I challenged you, how much enjoyment would you have that? Would you think, oh well, you didn't enjoy that? Why is that? Well, we wanted you to lead it. You and you asked us a lot of questions. You demanded a lot of us. We don't really like that, or we may have not been as successful. Um, it's a phrase, a phenomenon. I used to work with in New Zealand and said, you know, train your weaknesses, not your strengths, which I kind of quite thought was quite good. So we reach out to networks, those around us, the players and participants. But what is it they're saying? And then when they say that, what do we do with that information to influence our practice? The third one was critical thinking skills, self-reflection, the importance of reflective practice, um, are we able to do that? Are we good reflective practitioners? Do we understand how to reflect? Um, that was uh, one of the things that came out there, you know, that real criticality, dig, digging down and can we reflect? Um, one, one of the feedbacks was, was we haven't really got much time. There's an expectation when they turn up, the coach has all the answers. Um, and also I think it's quite interesting as a feedback through observation. You know, the feedback to me as a coach is continually coming from the environment. I this yesterday with my students in terms of the way we developed a skill practice. Um, fairly disengaged at the beginning, almost deliberately until we layered it, we layered it more and more, we spoke to them and then right at the end of it, you could tell their heart rate, their engagement in terms of wanting to receive the ball, to find space. That feedback to me meant that the session was, I didn't need to ask them, I could tell from what they were doing with me. So feedback isn't always, in my criticality to look at something and from my experience, no. And then the final one was um, support systems. I think this is really important. Few coaches in the study had any experience of formal support. Um, coaches identified in support, input and support from a coaching organization's crucial development. Um, but one of the things that came, uh, and the last thing I'll say on this one was that the, in terms of support systems is who is around you. The parents are very quick to say something's not right using parents as credible and reliable sources can be problematic. Um, so I think that would be way that some coaches are influenced, sideline behaviors, comments. Um, so for, uh, give an example on that one, I think all three of us would agree that those decision-making rich environments that may look slightly chaotic to an, an untrained outside 
let's just say a parent, for example, will say, well, listen, it doesn't look like they're doing anything. What, what's going on? This isn't what I had when I was younger. Um, it's actually me, all of us being able to say, look, I can answer that question. And we're doing it because of these reasons where a young coach might think, maybe they're right. Maybe I need to do this. So I thought it was quite good. It made me think a lot more about um, yeah, reflections, who we reflect with and how we reflect. So I hope that's given you some insight into that paper. Fantastic. Love that. It's yeah, I've got two questions. And I'm not sure which way to ask uh, mm. ask them. So um, I'll, yeah, okay. So how much of this um, is on coaches as opposed to NGBs or sports organizations? Because I, I I think I see that a lot. Social media and coaches I talk to, it's oh the you know, the RFU or the the FA or whoever aren't giving me enough support. Mm. And I kind of go, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely valid, but then I also wonder actually how much of that is just on you to get on with and find yourself some more experiences coaches and expand your network and go and invest some time in in your kind of personal development or, or finding a mentor or doing all of that type of stuff and i answer my own question i guess it's a balance but i'd be interested from from both of your perspectives working in a coach ed space for you know sports organizations as as well as privately what where you think that balance sits I think we should now be a bit more mindful that more than ever, we don't need to look to our governing body as the only source of guidance. They're not helping me, particularly now with COVID-19 and the restrictions we've had of being able to attend CBD courses. There's no excuse now not to reach out to, I mean, all governing bodies are putting a lot of work online, free online CBD courses. And one of the projects that um, I'm supporting a student with in their dissertation is about community practice. So um, our local rugby club, um, at Basingstoke has, they may not have called it that, but a community of practice, reach out to those you coach around. So in other words, um, the beginning of this, what would have been the beginning of the season, that community of practice means that coaches can reach within their local, within their club to others. So for example, I'm now coaching, tackling for the first time, I'm now coaching this group for the first time, this age group, this skill, who's coached that before, what support, what advice could you give me? So actually you can almost look, there's no reason I don't think why you couldn't, you know, look to those around you, that, as we mentioned, those support systems, rather than blame all on the government body has been, come on, what are you giving me? There's so many sources of information, more now, short videos, podcasts, research information, articles, books, more than ever before, lovely discussions on Twitter. Just even need to join in, you could just sit back and, and look at where they're going. I do wonder as well, actually, whether the the lockdown piece just showed you can get value without it being a, a name, inverted commas. You know, mm -hmm. I think they've been pitched previously, oh, we've got so-and-so and so-and-so is an expert and they're going to, you know, impart all this knowledge on you. And, and I wonder whether that that's just shifted a bit. There's still value in that, don't get me wrong, but has it shifted to actually yeah as you said there's there's a huge value in the local junior rugby coaches because they're all doing a similar thing mm. it, it doesn't need to be some sort of ex-pro or whatever saying this is what i did it, it can be far more localized and, and maybe more, far more specific yeah I, I think again we have to have that balance as who, as who who is giving you that information so going back to that 1976 coach i'm sure there's a lot of things that would be useful but also he may still be giving you information that is literally has just aged and there's no place in, I mean, the, for example, the community practice question that came to me is the coach is using the word punishment. And you said, well, you know, just, I've heard the word punishment a couple of times. What do you think, Rich? I said, well, is that a word that we used when we were younger? And they said, well, children turning up late for sessions were punished with laps. I said, well, they don't drive the car, do they? You know? Um, they don't have any control over that and that word punishment shudder makes me shudder but i don't think that it was meant in a negative way i just think it was a word that came from the past from their experiences that now you might say let's be a little more empathetic to the journey they've been on to get here and if we need to okay um you come late a couple of times um is there anything we can do would you want to share a lift with somebody uh, when you don't worry about being late it's great that you're here. I know your sister's been dropped off at swimming. That's why you're a few minutes late. All I, and that's not just to children, by the way, it's to adults as well. Understand that journey. And that has come really from that community practice conversation. 
That's cool. I love to hear that. Derek, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, uh, first and foremost, I think Cheat has pointed in the fact that we we don't we're not coaching uh, rugby. We're coaching people rugby, and people uh, have got things in their own lives uh, to deal with and, and to do in advance of arriving at a training session. And if we put the person first, then uh, quite often we're uh, a lot more understanding of some of the things that we may perceive to be annoying as a coach. But in reality, it's just it's just the way life is, and life gets in the way of uh, of us making training uh, on time or coming to training in the right mood uh, or in the right mindset because I might be carrying some things into the environment that's happening in my real life and if we're really working in the interests of meeting people where they are then we'll understand what it is they're bringing to the table and being really mindful and empathetic of that when they when they enter into the uh, environment so I would echo a lot of the points that you're making there it cheats uh, 100% and um, I, I, I was just going to bring up a point just on validity was a really interesting word that you uh, that you used around um, the consumption of or the accumulation of knowledge from from other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I was guilty of perhaps jumping in on Tom Hartley's um, uh, thread uh, last week, um, or dare I say it was it was this week around bridging the gap between academia and uh, and practice. No, I'm I'm not an academic, and and I don't I don't claim to be, um, but I think we do need to take a bit more of an academic approach to understanding the knowledge that's being chucked at us mm-hmm. or that we are consuming um, either consciously or unconsciously uh, by engaging in platforms like Twitter or reading books or watching documentaries or engaging in conversations with other coaches. Um, and the consumption of that new knowledge, uh, yes, it's fine, but the way in which we consume it, I think, is more important. And what filters do we apply to that knowledge to say, okay, well, does that make sense for me in my context? Um, and we don't necessarily want to replicate and reproduce, but we want to take the best bits of what we're learning uh, and understand how we might integrate that into our personal theories of how we might coach rather than applying other people's theories to the, to the context that we, that we operate in and not simply um, by virtue of somebody being an authority or having a degree of expert power, just taking what they say on face value. Mm-hmm. So I suppose there's a bit in that around not necessarily being an academic, but being more academic in your um, scepticism and criticism of the new knowledge that's been um, um, put in front of you. Um, uh, yeah, so hopefully that makes sense, Chief. So, um, just yeah, add to what you were saying before. Yeah, I think that's a really lovely way of putting it because I think that we mustn't be dismissive of it because um, I had a conversation this morning, actually, with um, UK Coaching about a course I've written and it's actually saying that when you deliver it to a certain group of people, um, people have joked about me using double okay for building relationships now it's just the vehicle i use to build relationships and behind that is all the important elements and research that's gone into the importance of relationships and connections but the group i work with don't need to know that but i've reached out to them to make sure that you know this isn't some spurious activity i've put in there that has no foundation and i think that's the difference is academic research is critical to us going forward it's evidence-based but it's the the way that that is then um, delivered who is delivered and in what way it's delivered and i think you you actually hit the nail on the head the context in which you deliver it make it you know so i think that's the that's uh, that way i think and i think that we we just we're all in we're all working in the same direction aren't we you know and that's the that's the point i think do you think the filters on that have changed slightly? And and I mean, I came to academia in, in terms of my undergrad late and my master's late, but would that have previously, years gone by, the, the, the kind of the research would have taken place and then it would have gone to somebody in an NGB or an organisation and they'd have filtered it and then they'd have put it into their practice and then it gets rolled out. Do you think that middle bit to a certain degree has now been bypassed, that it's that it's actually way more accessible than, than ever it was? So that's maybe where this, this change has come, that there's now a lot more people that haven't got experience of, of that, the systems and the processes and the knowledge and the terminologies, et cetera, accessing research. Yeah. And so now they're going... Oh, well this is quite difficult and it's it's challenging to understand whereas before there was kind of a few layers of, of how that research was actually going to be filtered and implemented in a way that as you say th- there is always a theory behind the the co-chair that's taking place yeah it's interesting i had a, had a conversation so i, I recorded a, an episode of our of our podcast uh, on wednesday and i had um 
Dave Piggott, uh, Andy Abraham, and uh, Vinnie Webb on, and we were talking about um, uh, this uh, within the episode. And look, you can go on to scholar.google.com right now, and you can access uh, all of the research papers that you want, essentially um, for free within reason, to start engaging in coaching research, right? Um, but that's only going to be of any use if you're ready uh, to engage uh, in, in the research and you've got the skills to think critically and do so. Now, I, I'm, I'm a passionate believer in, in that um, when the time is right, a governing body should be the mediator of the research and the practice to develop skills within their cohorts of coaches to be able to engage with this research with a degree of criticality. Um, uh, engaging with it at level four is too late, in my view, um, which is my experience having done a level one, two, three and just completed my level four. I felt all of the skills that I learned by engaging with academia through the level four program would have benefited me even earlier if I started doing some of that at level two to a lesser degree, more of it at level three. And it would really help me bridge the gap when I started to do my level four, but also would really inform a um, more evidenced approach uh, uh, or, or more evidenced approach to how I um, delivered my coaching practice before. So I, I think that we should be looking to close the gap. Um, but not necessarily hitting people hard and fast really early with here is research, um, but more like just just turning the dial ever so slightly as we start going through the levels and mm -hmm. um, moving more towards uh, being evidence based research informed in how we coach. I, I don't know whether or not um, you might agree with that, Richard. I, 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 I really like the way you put that. And here's an example coaching philosophy. You know, I mean, the year one student, student coaches come along and think, I, I know their expectations are very different. And we spend the first few few weeks on philosophy. And actually, um, they understand why. And, and it's because, you know, if you don't know what you stand for, when you start out, you really just, you know, um, have no direction, no guide for your behaviours, no influence on that. Um, and, and I think that's, that links into what you're saying is let listen, we don't why wait till level four to we start to really seriously dig down to philosophy. Why not just give you that exposure at level one? I know governing bodies do talk about that. I don't think they talk about it enough in terms of an ongoing um, piece of work. So when you look at your coaching delivery, how much of the delivery reflection with your coach developer is linking your practice, not just to what your outcomes were, but to your general philosophy. And then, and then your phrase, turn the dial up, I think that's, that's exactly a really good, lovely way of describing it. Gradually, gradually, just turn up a little bit deeper, a bit more deeper, a bit more accessible. I, I find that fascinating. I mean, I, as I said, I came to uh, my undergrad when I was 26, so I'd probably been coaching for 10 years. And it, was, it really was interesting, and, and the value of the experience was understanding the theory the kind of the theory or the you know theoretical underpinning of the stuff I'd already been doing yeah. and I do think you can kind of come to it both ways you know if we can embed it earlier great but actually even if you get to a stage where you then look back and go well, why is it that I do what I do yeah. so I think there's some great validation there when you go well actually this is this is you know pretty theoretically sound I'm in a good space here I don't need to adapt or or change too much of this or it can lead you on another path and go you know here there's some other options um which yeah. is which is great I so then, the common, sorry I think the common question you get there uh, and hopefully just to, is that when you say to young coaches what you know why are you coaching so I want to give something back to the game that I, that I gave so much to me brilliant that's doesn't you know that's lovely that's why when I stopped playing that's why I coached but I'd need to live a bit more than that you know and tell me a little bit more what that what that looks like. What does that look? What does that giving back look like? And I think that's where Derek talks about gradually turning the dial up. I think that's where we're at, really. Yeah, no, hundred percent agree. Um, so that kind of segues on to my my second of the questions I had from the beginning. So we're talking about building certain things in earlier. I mean, whether it's academia, my my actual question was going to be around: Does reflective practice need to be delivered a lot earlier? And thinking of my journey or coaches that I've worked with as an educator, I'm just wondering, actually, again, we asked them to do it. Is that actually something that is worth explaining and, and giving them some of the theory behind so, so they recognize it is a process? It's not just something that you do on a course and 
you're asked to make notes on or, or a video or whatever. I wonder whether that's actually a, you know, a peek behind the curtain that's really worthwhile. So then they can start to see how the process is constructed to be able to get more people within their environment doing that. And it, and it helps them progress it and develop it. Yeah, I think that, I think that reflective piece is um, something I, I'd absolutely agree with, you, you know, and our, we do a reflective log, you know, talk about your, and we'll fill our logbook in. But um, recently and, and yesterday we're doing some work around just uh, this phrase which is guiding a lot of my work now which is understand someone's experience now for me i think that's a very powerful form of reflection because it's not as much about your ability from coaching but it's about reflecting the impact of those you are coaching what are they experiencing what you've just done um, and how will that how by understanding that will that shape our reflection in action well let's change it now or next week i won't do that again or that really worked and so we had the students, um, I gave them all a Rubik's Cube yesterday. They've got two weeks to learn it. Then they've got to teach a nominated person in the group how to complete the Rubik's Cube. Now that reflection was, was on that task. And I, when I handed it out, it was very interesting. So here's reflection. Ben straight away couldn't put it down. Now, as a, and there's a great scale of people, uncertainty, certainty, engagement, non-engagement. Now, reflection is me thinking those cues are coming back to me right now. If I'm a true reflective practitioner, my next step will be based upon what's just happened rather than next week. And to get them to understand that as well, the reflection in actions about adaptation, being able, being intuitive to change, so yes, reflection isn't just, well, how did it go? Um, what went well and why? <laughs> Those classic questions, what would you change? It's a lot deeper. And I think that phrase, peek behind the curtain, is a really good way of describing that introduction to reflection that I think could come deeper earlier. Yeah, and, and I have this argument, it's not an argument, but the discussion quite a lot with a number of coaches I've worked with. And it's, yeah, how much do players need to know? Again, you, we're, we're in, in terms of the, the, the predominant delivery styles now. My thought is that's all based on their ability to reflect. So if we're if we're using questions and we're, you know metacognition and all these games and everything else, if they can't reflect, it's it's arguably pretty pointless. Mm. And and I'm just not sure as coaches or even coach educators, we do anywhere near enough to to let them in on that understanding and they, they don't need to understand completely as a player how coaching works but that is one thing i'd be adamant they really do need to get a good grasp of and be well educated around how you utilize it because I, yeah. otherwise i'm just kind of going well what, what we're just we're, we are just playing games for fun then if, we, if they don't have an ability to take that away and, and manage those thoughts and, and come back and, and implement it in any sort of process mm. uh, yeah i don't know how it happens but do you think it's a scary process? I talk about ouch moments. And ouch moments, when you look at yourself on video and somebody points something out and you go, oh, and you're, yeah, you just missed that. And reflection is gonna have ouch moments. And maybe we don't, I don't know, it's a question to you both. Do, do people not reflect because they're worried about thinking, oh, what might come back? Oh, uh I suppose my, my view is sometimes people don't necessarily know what it is uh, to, they are reflecting on or to reflect on, mm. um, which, is, which is why I like, um, so I, I like a Cushion's a case system. Uh, as, a, as a coach developer, I might use uh, the coach analysis and intervention system um, to codify uh, coaching behaviours that might be markers of curiosity that, I, that were then engaging a conversation with coaches about, um, which might be around the way in which they provide feedback or instruct or use humor or praise or dare I say it in scold or punish people to go back to that word that you mentioned at the start uh, cheats but I also like um, Bob Muir's planning and reflective tool uh, as well as a really neat tool that you can dial up or dial down in terms of the um, depth of complexity that you might apply to your coaching practice right so um, you might use Bob's planning and reflection tool to to engage in well what is the learning outcome so what is it we're trying to do today what does the activity need to look like to achieve that outcome whether they're uh, technique-centered approaches or game-centered approaches mm -hmm. uh, what does my coach behavior then need to look like within the context of those activities whether i'm going to be problem setting or problem solving 
and what does my coaching behaviors look like within that around instruction and questioning and then of course you start thinking around well what does learner engagement need to look like in order to achieve those outcomes as well from a planning perspective but of course you just revisit that tool at the end to go well okay did i achieve my outcome were the activities appropriate to the learners that i had in front of me in terms of um, should i have done less game-centered and more technique-centered approaches because they simply weren't getting that tactically today um, and in terms of like what did they learn well did i were my coaching behaviors aligned to the to the to the learning activities i.e did i ask far too many questions within a technique-centered approach to what i was doing or did i not ask enough questions when we were doing some game-based activities and the use of such a reflective tool in my view enables you to almost take a a taxonomic approach so uh, to how you might develop reflective practitioners within your athletes through the questions that you're asking uh, of your athletes in the context of the game that you're playing now you can revisit uh, at some stage with them to say okay why do you think i was asking those questions it's not necessarily for me to um, to garner an answer from you as to what you thought you were doing within the context of that performance but for you to begin reflecting upon your own performance an appropriate response with a degree of cognition back to Mira and what you believed uh, you were doing in the context of that performance. Mm. And I think using tools like that, not just as a coach to develop yourself as a reflective practitioner, but to develop reflectors within your athletes or your performers, your participants, it is crucial yeah, as well. Ho hopefully that makes mm. sense to you both. Yeah, I just think just um, interesting that they get into the habit of being asked questions. That they know that they're going to be questioned and it's, it's a safe place to share their reflections. I mean, I, I did work with the, the right kind. Sorry, I was just going to say, of course, they've got to be the right kinds of questions as well. Exactly, and, and uh, you know, there's no right or wrong answer; just your experience of what's happened. I think that, that I always think of the story about uh, from Tony Minicello when he was working with um, Jess Ennis around the long jump, and so he would he would be asking her a lot of these questions because I think they had to change her takeoff foot because of an injury and and this type of stuff. So he said, you know, how does it feel and what all this type of thing, and then they were sat down with the psych as a as kind of a, a dual session. And um, she was saying, oh, you know, I find it quite frustrating that he's not, he doesn't really know what he's talking about when it comes to the long jump. And he's like, what, what, what do you mean? She goes, well, you ask, all these, you ask me all these questions. And I, I, that just makes me think you don't know. And he's just like, yeah. hold on. We, we really need to get back to why I'm asking you questions here because yeah. I'm happy that I know. I'm yeah. just trying to, and they, they'd never had that conversation about coaching process, about why that was. So yeah, I, I always think that illustrates it quite nicely that, yeah, sometimes the player does really need to understand why we're doing what we do in the way that we do it um, for it to make sense. So, yeah, great stuff. Uh, Derek, we'll come to you. Uh, we'll shift it on. What, uh, what was your content? Uh, cheers, mate. So I, um, I picked up a paper this week from uh, Niles Federson um, looking at uh, coaches' perceived pitfalls in delivering psychological skills training to high-level youth athletes in fencing and football um, through the lens of a, of a coach developer but also um, part of my role within the system in Scotland is to design what coach learning um, might look like. Um, I found this uh, paper to be uh, quite interesting. Um, one because a lot of the narrative that we see within sport coaching at the moment is around um, developing people and not just players so within that is around developing the psychological skills of the of the kids that you're working with uh, as well, right? Not not just in terms of um, their ability to cope within the context of sport, but also to cope with some challenges that they may they may see uh, or, or face uh, in life. Um, so I, I found it an interesting paper to just delve into just on on, on that account. Um, so from from my perspective, um, you know there are a number of programs out there which aim to develop psychological characteristics in youth sport, and we're probably all aware of. PCDEs, so the psychological characteristics of developing excellence um, brought to us by Orlick and, and Partington back in 98, but um, Dave Collins and Anya McNamara uh, and colleagues um, are, are really big proponents and advocates of PCDEs uh, through a lot of their work. Um, there's also, if you look at Cote and Gilbert or even Cote, um, Turnage and Evans uh, and the development of the personal assets framework, um, they talk uh, even within youth sport, away from trying to develop excellence around um, uh, developing the four C's, so competence, confidence, connection, and character, which may lead to 
participation, personal, personal development, and performance within within kids when they're situated within the dynamic elements of what um, what sport is, which is you know quality social dynamics, personal engagement, and activities, and appropriate settings. So you can see both within performance sport uh, and in in youth sport, there is a there are calls to develop um, psychological skills or, or look at personal development in, in people. So, so that's why I picked up and started engaging in this paper. So it, in essence, it was working with or a study of two coaches within, within Danish sports, one in football, uh, one in fencing, as I mentioned, who went on a three-month uh, coach education program to support them to develop these psychological skills that we're speaking of uh, within the athletes that they work with um, and it was basically trying to um, ascertain uh, how successful it was going to be uh, or some of the pitfalls that they found so it was an action uh, action based research study um, and the data was largely generated through observational data and semi-structured interview um, I think firstly I was struck with um, how little value the coaches in the study placed on psych practitioners um, there was obvious cost implications and feeling there was little bang for buck, but um, there was clearly a disconnect between what they believed psychological practice to be and what it actually is. Um, so they spoke of it being decontextualized and something that happened on a chaise lounge uh, and theoretically being uh, overly academic um, and not necessarily having meaning for them. So one of the coaches gave a really clear example of a fence or spending uh, a ton of money that they didn't necessarily have uh, to engage with a sports psych. Uh, and coming back into the environment with new ways of coping that actually made them worse off in terms of performance. So uh, what really made me wonder is just that the degree of skepticism towards the program from the off, um, what biases that created or um, dialed up within the coaches that um, that created problems later on when when uh, when they were engaging in um, trying to transition or translate their new knowledge into practice. Um, but I, I started being curious as well around that skepticism and whether or not that's simply in Denmark and would the, would the views be uh, the same within the UK? So are UK coaches or coaches within the sporting system here are skeptical uh, of, of psychological services, knowing that psych is a bit more systemized in the UK uh, than it perhaps it could be in, in, in Denmark or Scandinavian countries. Uh, but I suppose the one thing we need to remember in this paper is that it's, it's two coaches and it doesn't necessarily um, uh, 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 give the view of, of a broad coaching population within that country. And but, but put, putting the skepticism to one side, I think the, the most interesting aspect in this was the question of ethics and morality uh, in, in the context of developing these psychological skills with the coaches. Um, so, and it, and it led me to be really curious around what the, what the curriculum for this program actually looked like. So were they, were they there to help coaches develop the psychological skills in athletes? such as PCDEs, or was it to equip coaches with some psychological skills in terms of their interactions with their athletes? And I was left pretty unclear around what the curriculum for that program was. Uh, and that becomes even clearer when you start looking at some of the findings within the research beyond, beyond skepticism. So the, the, the author or the authors found that the, the, the lines began to blur between um, where the coaches saw themselves as a coach or as a psychological practitioner or a psych practitioner um, and it started to create real problems within the context of uh, of the study um, now I can I can understand why they wanted to develop psych skills in the coaches because of their closeness to the athletes and the level of trust athletes have in their coaches um, but uh, what really became clear was just how fuzzy the boundaries became between between the coach and the athlete um, so it struck me that we really need to be looking at how we help coaches to know what's within their limits um, so that they don't overstep uh, with such programs um, or equipping them with knowledge that protects the athletes and themselves from being exposed. So one thing that, that was pretty clear is that there was a lack of supervision or support um, when they left um, the coach education program and went actually back into their own environment and started using the skills that they learned without necessarily having a degree of protection uh, or um, supervision within that environment. And it made me wonder whether or not a coach developer uh, in that context might help uh, keep those lines um, fairly clear. And there's one really uh, um, strong example within this study of what I'm talking about here, 
where a coach was privileged some information by an athlete through disclosure um, and the coach what they what was disclosed to them caused a dip in the athlete's performance um, and it caused the coach to deselect the athlete um, so they used the information that was privileged to them using the skills that they learned as a uh, as a psych practitioner let's just say um, from the coach education program that they were doing uh, and he deselected that player because he felt that it might jeopardize the team's performance and their ability to win uh, at the weekend uh, and that throws up a real concern for me as a as a coach developer, as a developer of coaches, a developer of learning programs for coaches, that there was a clear breach in trust uh, um, using such insight from the athlete to inform selection. And I felt it was fairly unethical uh, uh, at best. Um, so in my day job where I, where I design coach learning, it made me wonder about the design of such programs. So for me, it shouldn't necessarily be about developing coaches as psychology practitioners but to know enough about psych to be psychologically informed in terms of how they practice. And it also throws up this idea of interdisciplinarity. And so for me, knowing just about enough to know when you need to call in the psych practitioner is probably what's important here, rather than engaging in psych practice itself and clearly distinguishing between what the intentions of such a program is for, i.e. supporting the coach to develop an athlete's personal assets and not to support them with their psychological functioning. So yes, we can guide and we can advise, um, but we, we as coaches cannot bite off more than we can chew and certainly not use what we learn from athletes to impact or inform selection. Um, in, in not doing so, I think we risk pseudo-psychology or, or developing pseudo-psychologists within the system. Uh, and albeit they're doing it with good intentions, they're doing so ungoverned, unsupervised and without a code of ethics. Um, and I think just the last bit for me is that there's something in it around supporting coaches to engage in the underpinnings. So both coaches spoke about um, site theory being too academic. And we're all aware of some of the narratives that we see about bridging the gap between practitioners and academics, which I agree upon um, in large part, but um, we must not also be, you know, we, we must consider it's not always about the academic coming to meet the practitioner where they are. The practitioner's got to meet them uh, halfway, I think, and in doing so, the coaches may be less defensive, less skeptical, and more open to having psych practitioners in their environment to provide the domain-specific support <coughs> rather than feeling like they need to do it themselves. Ho hopefully that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, what I really liked from Derek's piece is a few things that have been thrown out really. Um, more than that, inevitably as a coach and a teacher, we are dealing with psychology all the time. I wouldn't ever call myself a sports psychologist. That's a preserve for people who have studied that specific discipline for years and had to have those accreditation from hours of one-to-ones uh, or with teams and conducted the research with it. I, I think, um, how do we support, it's a bit like a biomechanist, isn't having a sports psychologist in a team and a biomechanist in a team for the ones who can afford it at the higher levels. So, you know, actually, maybe it's the, an understanding of some psychological principles. That doesn't mean you are pretending to be a sports psychologist, but having an understanding of human behavior within your coaching environment that you've learned from a course, that you've put into context and understood. So even yesterday, when we're doing the Rubik's Cube, that this is what throws up, this is what, what throws up okay is that when they feed back to each other and they coach the student they've been allocated they say things like well he don't want it badly enough he's given up okay and when they produce photographs of that diary they produce there's a student there with it next to him in the coffee shop by his pillow when he fell asleep trying to do it or whatever and then you've got the ones who really want to do it and there's no reward but that's a level of intrinsic motivation, how driven internally, what's your internal mechanism, internal drive to complete something that has no external reward. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but when you design a session, it's going to the coach and saying, are you creating environments that are engaging because the task you're giving people is something they're driven to complete and driven to succeed? And I'm not a psychologist, I'm a coach, but I understand 
about giving somebody a task that they're driven to complete and not to. So I think that, you know, the point that Derek makes is really, really important. We don't want to become pseudo-psychologists and we don't want to reach out to sports psychologists at the first sign of behavioural challenge in our coaching setting. But we do want to have some toe in the water around psychological principles linked to coaching behaviours. I think that poses a really good question of how how do we know how far to go with that before mm. it becomes something that we, we yeah we're then becoming something we're not. But you know you you can spend a lot of time educating yourself and and get quite in depth into into that. But actually, at what point have you got to go? Yeah, this isn't this isn't my domain. As you said, I'm I'm not a psych. I'm a coach. I now need to find a way of resourcing this with somebody that is, or or is it? I mean, it's you see psych done a number of different ways, don't you? Actually, is that the psych coming in or is that the psych supporting the coach to be able to then, you know, be the the lens or the the mouthpiece or whatever you want to kind of call it for for that team? And I wonder maybe if that's, a, if you haven't got somebody in permanently, maybe that's a slightly more constructive way to be that the psych is guiding you as a coach in, in how you're operating and dealing with, with players in that environment. I wonder if that, that slight change might, might just make it a little bit more, um, yeah, adaptable or, or, or kind of um, amenable to the group. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I suppose that's why I was questioning so much throughout reading this paper is what, what does the curriculum, what does the programme of learning look like for the coaches that went on this? So, um, I mean, the, the paper states around in delivering psychological skills training to high-level youth athletes, but at what point did the coaches assume that they were psychology practitioners? Mm. Um, uh, and that, that's one thing that we really need to be mindful of when we're delivering some of these um, uh, programmes is uh, what are we equipping coaches with? Well, some some people who are equipped with new knowledge immediately go to apply that new knowledge without necessarily having uh, the skills and the underpinnings to be able to understand um, uh, whether or not they're using it in the right context, but also equally where the boundaries are. Mm. Um, and it, it strikes me um, to be similar in part to a study that I did uh, as part of my, my postgrad uh, diploma looking at... Um, what the role of a coach developer is in mediating stress and burnout for coaches. Now, with, within that study, we we asked um, a sample of so about twenty five percent of the of the coach developer workforce in the UK responded, and we asked them what evidence bases inform their practice. Seventy seven percent came back to say that they use uh, either um, performance psychology, clinical psychology, or counselling to inform their practice. Now, when you uh, go in to understand, okay, well, what training have you got to do so? Um, only 8% of respondents had a psychology undergrad or postgrad, and only one respondent had any counselling training. And it really made me wonder to what extent um, in engaging with supporting the psychological health of coaches, of which 70% said they do that as part of the day-to-day -day practice. How much pseudo-psychology are we seeing within the context of the coach developer work? Uh, and so to what extent then are we seeing uh, pseudo-psychological practice in the context of coaching? Uh, and I think we really need to be careful around how we are protecting or exposing people by uh, enabling some of that to happen. And, and um, Chita, I, I completely agree. We need to be psychologically informed in what we do. We don't necessarily need to be psychology practitioners. And it leads me to a, an anecdote that I've been told several times by a colleague of mine around uh, Ian McGeekin, when uh, the institute was first put in place in Scotland, he was offered psychological support. So he was offered support of, of a sports psych. And I think he turned around and said, look, if I want to rewire a plug, I'll do it myself. If I need to rewire a house, I'll call an electrician. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the same thing that you apply to the context here, right? Yeah. No, that's, a really, that's a really good analogy. Because, and I think what's got back to what Phil says is that if we've got a let's just say a behavioural issue, we don't go straight to a psychologist. We've got to use our intuition and experience and knowledge. Maybe talk to others, those informed others uh, about advice. I wonder what circumstances you would call a sports psychologist in. And certainly if I was coaching, I don't know, if I coached 
to go back to the amateur rugby club that I, I worked with for, for years. If I brought a sports psychologist in, I said, what sports psychologist come in next week? I wonder what the players might start thinking. They might start thinking, right, okay, uh, we need something. He's, do you know what I mean? Uh, what, would it, what message would it send to those players? Um, whereas if I spoke to somebody and got some guidance, then that would be, be helpful. I mean, you know, I suppose one of the things if I was coaching an under eights group of young children, I might go and speak to my daughter's teacher at school and talk about challenging behaviour with, with, with children that age. You know, what's it like in a classroom setting? What kind of things work? You know, what, how do you manage this? I'm not saying that's the way, but child development is, is, the, is certainly an area that they are absolutely immersed in. Um, and that might be an interesting thing. I wouldn't bring them in. I might just go and talk to them. Um, it's, it's an interesting point, though, isn't it? That it is the perception that we only bring in a psychologist when, when there's something needing to be fixed. Hmm. And actually, the benefit of having a psych in and around the environment is um, providing people with the psychological skills to be able to cope with performance. Hmm. Um, and actually, it could be a really proactive and positive approach to... To supporting your athletes rather than just coming in when things just go wrong yeah, um, yeah. and and i i think we really we need to position uh, psychology or the, the role of a sports psych uh, as such as being something that can really complement um your environment rather than uh, a tool that you uh, employ or deploy when there's something to be fixed or someone to be fixed mm. yeah I, mean, I, I like that that's true i think we naturally we do things that if we're influencing behaviors and we're trying to think how they think um then you know i think we are using our experience you know experience that great teacher um here's an example of a student uh, actually uh, recently graduated and really end of the first year i wrestled with this for three weeks and i stopped him and i said right okay you're not going to believe me, but I've been spending three weeks and I wanted to get the right question to ask you. And he misbehaved the whole year. Very my undergraduate, you know, so there's some level of expectation of, I don't know. Um, maybe it was my sessions, I don't know. And I said, I, I've been spending three weeks trying to find the right question to ask you. And here it is. He said, what is that? I said, when I look at you, what do I see? And he said, messing about. So there you go, thanks very much. And that broke the ice between us because we had a conversation about it, an open conversation, but I got to get the right question. I didn't read about it in a book. I dragged my mind back through what I believe would be that one, that silver bullet, if you like. Um, so it wasn't a psychological intervention, but it certainly made a difference. And I think there's thousands of coaches who will have similar stories about that one question, that one action they did that wasn't built on the knowledge of a sports psychologist, not marginalizing their role, but built upon actually our trust of intuition and experience. And if the behavior continued to different, then maybe I'd reach out somewhere else, but that's just my thoughts on that. I think you're dead right. It, it's that ongoing conversation. So I've been doing IDPs with the, the uni group I'm working with and over the last few weeks and the amount of times I've said, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but you, mm. but you are trying in terms of me not being able to give them definitive answers if, if there is such a thing as a definitive answer. But the questions are actually just trying to get get under the hood and, and just start to understand them a little bit better. And again, it, it's it, I think it's knowing your boundaries as a coach. You, you need to be able yeah. to know the person. You need to yeah. be able to know what their approach to confidence or pressure all these things are but but I definitely don't see it as my role to start going I'm going to start playing around with this and going well have you thought about you know whether pressure is this or whether confidence is that and where it comes from I'm just kind of like no 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 I need to leave well alone all I need to do is really understand why you think the way you think you do and that can then help me inform my relationship with you and how I go about acting but it, as I say I, I guess at some point that's probably a fine line to tread um and and that for me then i mean we're quite lucky we get some some psych support come in and that will be the question that i've got you know pages full of questions on how, how am i going to be better dealing with this player 
you know, what, what approach do I need to take to try and manage this based off the conversations I've had with them? And I, I definitely think that's where you can get those little steers. I think a safeguard, you know, sorry, Derek. I was just going to say that that's the um, that's the important part around interdisciplinarity is is the you go into coach's orchestrator at that point and you go okay well, what what services have I got available to me and how do I use those to complement my interventions around the athlete so a little bit of psych here a little bit of biomech there a little bit of nutrition there and it's just how you're dialing up and dialing down the the services or the disciplines that you've got around the athlete to get the right blend of intervention for them so yeah I would echo what you're saying there Phil. I think um, when you do, when I teach a safeguarding course, one of the, one of the questions in these cases, these examples we give people is, um, and and a lot of them come to solve the, the issue, the case that we give them, from the wanting to care, the wanting to help people. But actually, say, great, I really appreciate you want to help people, but you need to put boundaries on what your role is. And this is a bit the same with the coach, isn't it? That we need to boundary what our role is as a coach, and that we're not a psychologist. But if it goes that point. You know, much as I really care about you, I've really got to know my limits in my role and we need to go and bring somebody else in. And I think it's done from a position, not because people want to pretend they are something always, but to actually, if they just generally care, and they want to do it themselves, or they don't, they don't know where to go, who to ask. And then, as you say, Derek, you know, who's around me to ask and bring in? No, I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm conscious of both your time, guys. So um, I think we'll just leave that one there and we will move on to your uh, content recommendations. So what, uh, what are you suggesting people get out and, uh, and have a look at if they can? Uh, I suppose if I just um, go through uh, just a podcast, actually. Um, and it was a podcast I uh, sent to um, a student who is a teacher who is a mad Chelsea supporter. And uh, it is... Um, I just find it, which I've put to one side. It is um, it's the, the high performance with we get Humphrey, and it's the episode with Frank Lampard, which I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not a follower of football, but um, wow, what I thought he was very, very, he came across really well. A lot of humility, you know, if I don't know, this is what I thought he was very open and very engaging. So if you wanted to meet to read, I can send you that. But as a pod, I would, I would definitely encourage people to listen to that one. High performance with Jake Humphrey, the interview with Frank Lampard. And Damien Hughes, interview with Jake Humphrey, Damien, Damien Hughes, they lead it. Great stuff. Thank you. Derek, what are you saying? Uh, yeah, shameless plug for my own podcast, probably the, the Coaching Discourse podcast. Um, I, I think... Uh, We've got a we've got an episode going out next week on ontology and epistemology and its importance in sport coaching, um, and what we're trying to do is offer a plainer account of uh, of those subject areas that seem to be seeping into um, the discourse in sport coaching at the moment. So, do coaches need to understand it? Is there any value in understanding it? And moving forward, like I said, that's with um, Dave Piggott, uh, Andy Abraham, and Vinnie Webb, uh, along with myself, uh, Anna Stoddard, uh, and Laurie McDonald. Um, but if I was to offer a paper to anyone just now, um, I've engaged with this paper a few times over the last few months, um, which is a communal language for decision-making in team invasion sports by Mike Ashford, um, Jamie Poulton and Andy Abraham. I think it's a fantastic paper where, you, where they basically looked at offering a, a plainer account um, of um, classical decision-making, recognition, prime decision-making, naturalistic decision-making, ecological dynamics uh, around um, a framework um, for how you might um, use that in, in your practice. Um, so yeah, that, that paper I think is a very, very useful one for anybody trying to uh, get to grips with understanding athlete decision-making. Top stuff. Having, uh, having been on the two-bit minimum, I will, I will give that a plug as well. I'm sure you're always keen to, keen to get two guys on. So um, yeah, if anyone wants to, uh, to listen to the coaching discourse pod and then uh, get in touch with Derek to, to be a part of that, it was uh, a really interesting process and conversation that, that actually has been picked up a, a few times since, which is, uh, which is always good. So, top stuff. Uh, one for me this week is the Learner Lab. So uh, episode seven, Emotions, Learning and Resilience with Susan David and Mark Brackett. Really, really interesting take on just how we manage our emotional states and create separation between emotions and 
um, kind of the role of resilience. And it, it's just a probably quite an alternative take on that, but I thought it was hugely powerful. Um, and there's some really, really good messages in there. So I would definitely recommend anybody to uh, check that one out. Where's that one, Phil? Where was I found that one? Uh, so the, the Learner Lab. Okay. Podcast, yeah. I've only discovered it a couple of weeks ago, and that was my first listen. Um, and it's uh, the two guys. So, yeah, Susan's at Harvard Medical School, and Mark is the director of Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Um, okay. But hosted by a couple of American guys. But uh, yeah, no, really, really, really interesting. Um, cool. Right. We are done. Gents, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate that. Some, uh, some great discussions and some great points to come out of that. So uh, I'll round up the roundup. We hope you find it useful. Thank you to my two guests for their brilliant insight. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.